0: If You've got your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 25. We're going to talk a little bit today about that moment when we see our Savior's face, when we shall be with Him, when we shall look upon Him and be at home at once with the Lord. It's amazing to me, uh, reading some stuff this week, how much money and effort and time we spend trying to delay meeting our Lord. I read this week that on average they believe that this year Americans will spend over $1.6 trillion on health care. Now, after all, health care is just trying to stay healthy, right? To extend our life expectancy or to extend the time before we see Jesus, right? And we spend an inordinate amount of time and energy on that. In fact, what's interesting is some of the most uh, religious people, if you would use that term, about their health are Christians that are adamant about being healthy. Now, we do have that admonition in Scripture that our body is the temple of the Lord. Um, We won't talk about the fact that in the original language they say the body being us is the temple of the Lord. But we use that verse and say we've got to train it, we've got to keep it, and you all can tell I'm in top physical condition, right? Maybe not. But I, I will tell you this. One of the things about being pastor, when you go on a trip like Brazil or even on Wednesday night suppers, um, everyone is concerned about what I eat. I've determined that. Um, constantly in Brazil, people would make sure I was eating what I was supposed to eat or not you know, indulging Myself and so we take care of our bodies and we make sure other people take care of theirs The truth is though death is something we don't have to fear As believers in jesus death is something that we shouldn't fear at all In fact one author has said that we have a faith that does not shrink from death The fundamental concern of our faith is to reveal with fearsome accuracy the nature of death and to draw the sting from it by the victory of the resurrected Christ. The only way to approach life, and in essence to approach death, is to approach it with an understanding of what lays on the other side. You see, if we do not approach our lives understanding that we are but pilgrims or passengers on our way to our ultimate destination, we can get caught up in what's happening here. C.S. Lewis once said that if you read history, what you'll see is that the Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. You've heard the phrase before, right, that you can be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. That, that really can never be true. If you're really focused on what God's kingdom is about and what He intends for us to do. You see, the truth is, We need to be constantly reminded that what the world we live in is not reality. This world is a distorted picture of what God intends. How many of you out there have ever watched any reality TV shows? Right? Yeah. I saw a thing this week that, do you know ten years ago there were only four reality television shows? In the year 2000, there were four. There are hundreds now. Well, let me tell you a little secret here. Reality television is not reality. Amen? You know, one of the first ones was a show on MTV called The Real World, and they said it's real TV, The Real World. is the name of it, right? So how do you create the real world? You throw nine single 20-somethings, that have never met each other before in life into an apartment and say, live together for six weeks. That is not reality, right? Secondly, anytime cameras come into the picture, it's not reality. And so you have this reality television that's not real, and we know that. But the truth is, this is not real either. It's distorted reality. And what happens is we get so comfortable Where we are, that we forget where we're going. And within us, there ought to be a longing for our eternal home. The song that Sydney just sang, one of the things I love about that song is you get in that song, and I appreciate the way Sydney sang it so much, you get that urge, that desire to be with our Savior. Most of you know we've been in Brazil for a couple of weeks, and uh, we got back last Monday. Five of us got back later than we were supposed to get back because of uh, complications in the Miami airport. And we, uh, we got on the plane in Porto Segura, Brazil, uh, not too long from now, uh, three or four hours from now last week. So almost a week ago, we got on the plane to come back, and we flew for, I don't know, 15, 16 hours, got to Miami, got in Miami, and it just took us a while to get through the process. Security line was ridiculous. And we got to the gate, and um, 12 of our team had made it, and five of us had not. The Brooks and myself had not made the flight. Now, uh, at that moment, I had to remember that I was a pastor and that I had people in our church behind us then Lisa had to remember that her pastor was standing next to her. We got to the counter, and the woman said, and, and, and I, she said, you missed your flight. I said, listen, we've been flying all night. We don't have any right You know, we went through this whole day. We, the plane, it's already gone, but it's not. we're on time. But we can see, the, you know, we, we can get us on a golf cart or something, you know. It was one of those you had to get on a bus to get to the plane. You know, we're, we're dealing with them. And then I said, well, what about, you know, when I decided she was not letting us on the plane? She said, I said, well, what about another flight? And she said these words, we can put you on another flight because technically you were on time. To which my response in the flesh was, I did not say this out loud, but in my mind, if we were on time, why are we not on the plane, right? And in that moment, a longing developed in my heart to be home. I had wanted to be home. I had thought about you know, I'd been gone for 12 days, I was ready to see Susan, I was ready to see the kids, I was ready to hold them, I was ready to be there with them, and then I got there and got stopped. and she said, "I can put you on a flight at 9:45 tonight." And I said, "No, you cannot. You can put us on a flight before 945 tonight." And so we ended up getting a nice little side trip to Washington D.C. We had not planned on that. On our voyage, I'd never been to Washington, not how I intended to see it. Got to go to Washington and then back to Nashville. We got to Washington, touched down, came over the Potomac, saw the Washington Monument, all that. We pulled up, and then you see a strange sight in Washington. There's a plane parked on the runway. And I thought, well, that's too bad for them. And then we pulled up beside them and stopped. The guy comes over the little loudspeaker and says, and we've got a connecting flight in less than two hours. And he says, we've been told there's no gate available. We'll be back in touch when we have a time. He comes back on and says, we will be here at least 45 minutes sitting on the tarmac. We finally get there. Our flight's delayed, of course, so we make the flight. We touch down in the midst of tornadic thunderstorms. I get off the plane and that longing in my heart that has been building is there. And I made a beeline for the exit. I don't know where Randy and Lisa were. I don't know where the girls were. And I didn't care at that moment. And I went. I got to baggage claim. Susan had called. I told them we were touched down. They would gotten stuck in the weather a little bit, so they weren't going to be at baggage claim. I walk out of the baggage claim area at Nashville's airport, and I see coming up the, or in the short-term parking Right across from me, I see Susan and Maddie and the boys. And I want to be honest with you, I did not look both ways. I just ran. Because of that longing in my heart to be with them. Scripture describes our ultimate home. And just as I had that longing in my heart to be with my family, we ought to have a longing. In our heart to be home. Matthew chapter 25 tells us a little bit about what that's going to be like. It's in the parable of the talents. And usually you don't talk a whole lot about heaven with the parable of the talents. We're going to talk about one verse in particular. But I just want you to remember today, wherever you are, because sometimes in our lives, the finish line of our heavenly home can get fuzzy. And I want you to remember today, If you're in the middle of the marathon, if you're in the middle of what seems like endless delays and you don't know how you're going to make it, I want to put this finish line as a picture out there of what it'll be like to be home. The context is Matthew 25 parable. You know, I'm not going to read the whole parable. You know most of it. Uh, it, It's about a wealthy landowner who goes away for a little while and he gives his people some money and says, take care of it. It's different varieties, different places. Uh, In biblical times, um, a a currency of a talent was about 6,000 denarii or day's wages. And so you're looking conservatively at one talent being about a quarter of a million dollars. Okay? So this is not two bucks that they're handing out. All right? So he gets a quarter of a million dollars. They've got it. One takes it. He gets five talents, and he does what? He doubles it, right? Then another one gets a couple of talents, and he does what? He doubles it. Then one gets one talent. What does he do? He buries it, all right? Usually when you talk about this passage of Scripture, you spend a lot of time on the guy that buried his because you talk about we don't need to bury our talent, we, don't need to, we need to be investing and risking. I want to focus today on the ones that did what God called them to do. And we get to verse 19, and it tells us this story, and I'm going to read just through verse 23, and we're going to focus on 21 and 23, which say the same thing. It says, After a long time, the master of the servants returned and settled accounts. The man who had received five talents brought the other five. Master, you've entrusted me five. I've gained five more. His master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two talents also said, Look, I got two talents. I gained two more. His master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many. Come and share your master's happiness. From verses 23 and 21, I want to focus on three things that I believe God is going to reward us with in heaven. And I want us to serve this as a finish line, if you will, a picture, a mental picture that ought to drive us today to live our lives more devoted to the Lord because of these things. The first thing that God is going to reward us with when we get to heaven is commendation. I know that's a big word. I know that we don't use that a lot. But it just means he's going to reward us with praise. Look what it says. It says when the master returned, when he returned and he saw his people and they came and they showed him what had done, the first thing he says is, well done, good and faithful servant. Now think about this for just a minute. We spend a lot of times trying to figure out how best to give praise to God, right? I mean, Jeff spends hours each week about setting up a way that we can get together and sing together. Some of you uh, spend time in your personal lives praying and thinking about how you can give praise to God. I want you to think about this for a minute. How awesome is it going to be when God gives praise to us? It says here that God turned to them and said, Well done, good and faithful servant. When the God who shouts and the mountains quake or speaks and worlds come into existence, speaks praise to you. Six simple words here. But when we hear them lips of God saying them, they will shake us like we have never been shaken before. Now, if that's all the Bible said about that commendation, it would be amazing, but it's not all that it says. It also tells us that it's going to be very personal in nature. In 1 Corinthians 4 5, I think we've got that on the screen. It says this Judge nothing before the appointed time, wait until the Lord comes. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Judge nothing before the appointed time, wait till the Lord comes. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Here's the picture here in 1 Corinthians is that we don't know exactly what God's going to do, but at some point when the Lord comes back, or when we are with the Lord, God is going to give praise to each one of us. And the idea behind this literally is like a handwritten letter of encouragement, not like a Hallmark card that God signs his name to the bottom of and passes out to everybody. Now, I love Hallmark and American greetings because they make anniversaries and birthdays easier, right? Now, some of you aren't wanting to shake your head because you're going to get in trouble. They make them easier, right? But one of the things I'm afraid we've lost in our society is the practice of handwritten notes of encouragement. Emails, and I'm just as guilty as anybody else, emails aren't the same. Text messages aren't the same as a handwritten note of encouragement. And it says here that when we get to heaven, when we see the Lord, there's going to be this moment when God will give us something like a handwritten, personalized note of encouragement. Now, Revelation tells us even more. He's talking to the churches here, and he says, To whom who overcomes? A church that was really in need. They were needing to persevere. They needed to remain faithful. God says, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now that seems like the rest of Revelation, which means what in the world is he talking about? How is that a big deal? He's going to give us a stone and some weird bread. But what it really means there is, for the people who are sustaining in the midst of this fight, God will give us what we need to keep going. And then he tells us about this strange white stone. Now probably it was something called a tessera stone. And Tessera stones were these square or rectangular stones, and they were all kinds of uses. Sometimes they were tickets, sometimes they were vouchers, um, sometimes they were personal identification, but the most common use of a Tessera stone, a white stone, was as an invitation to a major banquet. Kind of like today, we send out personalized invitations, and we, we send them out, and people respond to them. If you were given one of these stones, it would have inscribed on it what you needed to know. It was a Personal invitation. And so they gave these stones out and people would come to the party. Well what God says is that you're going to have a stone, and on that stone is going to be a name that only you and God know. Now names are important, right? My name's Lyle. Lyle Patrick Larson, full name. Only time that's ever used is when I'm in trouble. And so I don't you know, you people don't say Lyle Patrick Larson very much. That's my full name. Some people like their names. Some people don't like their names. Some people have funny names. Some people are embarrassed by their names. Some people change their names. Take, for instance, Sean Combs. Anybody know who Sean Combs is? You do, and you gave about five names for him, right? Sean Combs was his name originally. That's his birth name. But he changed it at one time to Sean Puff Daddy Combs and then he just dropped Sean and Combs and became Puff Daddy and then he went back to Sean P. Diddy Combs and then he just became P. Diddy and now I think he may just be Diddy and that may have changed in the last few days right people are known by one names, you got Sting Cher, Bono, Madonna Oprah, Prince Tiger, Kobe, Magic our last president was just a letter W, our current president's just one name right, Obama Cities have nicknames. There's the Big Apple, the Windy City, Boomtown, Big Easy, Sin City, Motor City, and Music City, USA, right? So names are important. And all of us have names that are different based on the situation we're in. Growing up, all of my my parents' friends called me LP. Now, my friends never really called me that, but my parents' friends called me LP. Now, if somebody calls me LP... That means I've probably known him for 25 years or longer, right? Except some of you who will now, as a joke, call me LP, all right? But but that was that's something I know. When I, when I was growing up, I played baseball, and my number in baseball was nine. And there's some rule that when you're playing baseball and you're on the baseball field, you cannot call anybody by their name. You must call them by their number, right? And so when I was up at bat, I was like, come on, nine, give us a hit. We need a hit. Come on, nine. Just over and over. And so off the field, they referred me to as, come on, nine, let's go, all right? That's just... How it was, I have a special name when I'm around my kids. They are the only ones that can rightfully call me Daddy. And it's a special name between us. And so you have different names based on different situations. Well, here's the cool thing about that verse in Revelation. I want to go back to that. It says that we'll get this stone, and it'll have a new name written on it that's only known to you and God not trying to trivialize this in any way but here's what that means when we get to heaven one of the first things we're going to hear is god's personal nickname for us that's just between the two of you and he'll say something about your character now how do i know that because every time he changes somebody's name in scripture it has to do with who they are or what they're going to do he changed jacob to israel He changed Simon to Peter. He changes Saul to Paul. And for many of us in this room, we may be in for a name change of biblical proportions when we get to heaven. It's commendation. It's saying, wow, this is who you are to me because of the faithfulness you've shown. This is who you are. This is how I know you. This is what I think of you. And it'll be the most important commendation you've ever received. I read an interesting little side note on an interview that you 2 gave when they went into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2004. They were interviewed about it, and uh, one of the band members says, I suppose if people want to shower you with honors, the only reasonable thing to do is accept them. Now, I want you to think about this. this. They're the rock and roll. They've made a claim before they want to be known as the greatest rock and roll band in history. And they are being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. In your profession, you can't get bigger than that. But the drummer said this, it does feel premature. We're all still trying to stay focused on the big prize. Now, those of you that know you two, there's a lot of discussion about their faith. And several of them are claimed to be believers in Jesus Christ. And I think that that comes. And I, I can't read their minds, but you know, they're not going to dispute me. They're not going to hear the sermon, so... I think it comes from an understanding that they've got bigger goals in mind than just an earthly hall of fame. What's your goal? What commendation are you looking for? Is it some promotion at work? Or will it only be shared when you stand before your maker and he says, well done, and gives you a name that only you and he know? Here's the second thing. God's going to reward us with commendation. Same thing is, he's going to reward us with responsibility. And all God's people said, yeah, I heard that. Amen. All right. good. he's going to put us to work. I apologize, by the way, because I almost just, some of you that went to Brazil will know this, I almost just say, uh, amen. All right, that's what they do in Brazil. And so if I do that, just pretend I said amen. You expect, you can expect when we get to heaven to have a promotion. Here's how it happens. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Then the second part, right? You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Luke 19 gives us a little more insight. This guy comes back, and he's got the minus, and he gives ten more, and he says, well done, I'm going to put you in charge of ten cities. It's exponentially greater. I gave you ten minus. I gave you some money. Now I'm going to give you cities. God is going to put us in charge of things. When we get to heaven, part of what our existence in glory is going to be is helping God to rule and reign over the universe. Now, that shouldn't surprise us, because the first command God ever gave to human beings when they were gathered together was what? Be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, rule over it. And when we get to the end of the book, when we get to Revelation 22, this is what it says. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and they will reign forever and ever. You see, what has happened is God has established from the beginning, we're going to work with Him to rule and to reign over the universe. Now, that is very difficult for us right now. I'm always amazed when we think we've got this whole nature stuff figured out. Right? Right? I saw we passed 100 days on the oil spill this week, right? Something around there. And they think they've got it capped finally. But how many attempts did we make to control that thing? We sent down our robots and our test things and we got guys sitting in a in and in a, I saw them on TV. They're in this little like trailer with computer things all around, and they're playing the game the whole time, trying to get it down there. And they've hired these twenty somethings because they're really good at video games to try and get it to work. And we think we can control things, and yet it still fights back. Tornadoes, hurricanes come, and we try to fight back. All this stuff is happening. Nature lashes out at us. People fight back with steel beams and concrete reinforced we get antibiotics and develop drugs and nature counterattacks with mutant viruses aids superbugs h1n1 but one day all that stuff's going to be gone and when all that's gone our responsibility in heaven will be to help god to rule and to reign and i don't know exactly how this works but the scripture indicates over and over Your job in heaven will somehow relate to what you've done here on earth and the faithfulness to God you showed in it. Now, I don't know how that works, but that's what Scripture suggests. So when we get to heaven, we're going to be given task and work. There was work before the fall of man. It just wasn't as hard, but there was work. Now, I know some of you say, now, wait a minute, Pastor. We hear all the time about entering into our eternal rest. And I just want to tell you real quickly why I don't think that heaven will be about eternal rest. And here it is. Because that would be the most boring place on earth. Or heaven. Now or in the future. Amen? I want you to think for just a moment. Some of you may be today or last week. Some of you it may have been 10 years ago, 15 years ago. When was the day in your life, and you may not be able to pinpoint the day, but the time, when you felt your absolute best physically? Absolute best. And I want to ask you this question. On the day that you felt your absolute best physically, is what you wanted to do all day to sit in a recliner and do nothing? No. If it is, don't tell me. It will ruin the illustration, all right? Now I'm not saying that there aren't times that we'd like to do that. There are days when I just want to sit down and do nothing, right? I and mean, there are days that I just want to rest. There are moments I want relaxation and peace. But when I feel my absolute best, I want to be doing something. I want to be playing. I want to be running around. I want to be. I want to be working. I want to be doing something. Um, this past uh, week in Brazil, we. Uh, Because of flights, we we left a day early, and we uh, came back a day later than we had intended. Well, because of our work schedule that was already set up, that meant we had a free day on the front and back. Well, on the back end of that, we had worked all week. We were tired. Some of you were in service last Sunday, and I've heard many people ask if I was physically okay because I looked terrible. I appreciated those compliments. But we were tired. But I felt good. You know, my body still felt good. And so on that Saturday, when I could have laid around all day and done nothing, that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to go play golf. We found a golf course out there. It was a minor little course, just overlooked the ocean and off the beach. But we found a course, and we played. None of, none of our team sat at the hotel all day and did nothing. So what makes us think we're going to get to heaven and go, whew, I made it. Nothing to do now. We're going to work. There are some of you in this room, if you got to heaven and there was no work involved, you would go nuts on the second day. Amen? You would. There are some of you that try to take a vacation, and by day three, you're counting down the days till you can get back to work. God made us that way. We are to rule and to reign. Mark Twain, who is in no way a guy that we ought to look to as a believer, kind of got this idea he wrote in a story called Captain Stormfield's Visit to Heaven about a guy taking him around and saying, you know, eternal rest sounds great from the pulpit, but just try it. See how long eternity is when you're doing nothing. He said, a man like you, Stormfield, that had been active and stirring, would go mad in six months in heaven where he didn't have anything to do. Heaven's the last place to ever come and not think about working. So we're going to get to heaven and He's going to give us responsibility. Now let me say this. You will not be upset with your responsibility in heaven. Okay? There is no complaint department in heaven. There's no human resources where you can complain about the boss in heaven. You won't feel bad about what you're given. It'll be an upgrade from where you are now, wherever you are now. But it will be responsibility. Here's the third thing. He's going to give us fellowship. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the commendation. Here's some more things to do. That's a responsibility. Then he says, "As come and share your master's happiness. The King James Version says, enter into the joy of your Lord. Now, the phrase come and share and enter into were commonly used in the first century to describe someone's grand entrance into an awesome feast and banquet. The master returns, he throws a huge party, and he basically says, now it's time for us to come together and to celebrate together. Now, a couple of things here. First of all, we're going to experience fellowship with each other. Scripture says that when we get to heaven, when we get into the presence of the Lord, we will be celebrating together with all the saints from time past, present, and future from all places that exist on the face of the earth. the Moody said this, Imagine people from opposite standpoints of the Christian world, from different quarters of human life and character, through various expressions of their common faith, through diverse modes of conversion, through different portions of the Holy Scripture, will the weary travelers enter the heavenly city and meet each other on the shores of the same river of life. Randy Alcorn says this, Consider what it will be like to see the Messiah of Kenya or the Dinka of Sudan, the Hmong, the Tibetans, the Aukans, the Icelanders, the Macedonians, the Moroccans, the Peruvians. Hundreds of nations, thousands of people groups gather to worship Christ and His many national and cultural distinctives, untouched by sin, will continue to the glory of God. That I always love about Brazil is worshiping with them. Now, Gary Taylor, who is the guy that does the construction, goes with us. He's been for 20-something years. I've heard him preach in Brazil several times. And one of the things he always says that I love is that when we get to heaven, there aren't going to be sections. So when we get to heaven, there's not going to be a Southern Baptist Tennessee section. There's not going to be a Methodist section. There's not going to be a Pentecostal section. There's not going to be an African American section and a Caucasian section. There's not going to be sections. There's not going to be Americans and then Europeans and South America. There's not going to be a section. We're going to be together. Let me also tell you something interesting. They don't take requests in heaven. You can't tell them, well, you know what? That last song was okay, but it doesn't hit my style, really. Can you play me some Gaither? Can you play me some Mercy me. I want something. song. Let's go with that. Right? We're going to be together. We're going to be worshiping. But I think it's important that we prepare ourselves for that kind of worship. Because some of us, if we're not careful, when we get to heaven, we're going to be very uncomfortable with the worship going on around us. And so today, I thought we would take just a moment to get you prepared in a small way for some Brazilian worship. Okay? Now, I made a promise to the pastor of the church with which we worked, and I made a promise that I would bring something back to you all. And so I'm going to, okay? It involves audience participation. And so he would get up. Our pastor was an excitable guy. And he would get up, and he would pronounce a blessing that they would respond to. And so I would say, He would say, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Good. Some of you know that. Good. All right? And then the congregation would reply, strength. Now, they're Brazilian, which means they're a little vocal and excited. And so it would not come out as most Southern Baptists would, which is, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Okay? There was some excitement there. He would do that two or three times. And then after that, he would do something that can only be described as a train sound. All right? And then the congregation would repeat that back to him. Okay? And so, we're going to do that today. Now, I just want to tell you real quickly, the 830 service has set the bar very high. They were heard in the hallways, below ground. You could hear them, alright? And so, just a little bit's not going to work. Alright? So, I'm going to ask you the joy of the Lord, and you're going to say, strength, that's the only words you've got, and then when I do the you are going to respond, all right? Okay, because you're looking at me like you're not all right. Okay? So, I expect it to be good. All right, here we go. The joy of the Lord is our? The joy of the Lord is our? The joy of the Lord is our? Woo! That's good. Let's mark that down. That's a part of our service from now on. Here's the thing we got to be ready when we get there. We're going to be among, it's going to be an amazing experience. One of my favorite things about Brazilian worship is this, and it happens every year. As we go to the first worship service, and they start singing in Portuguese, and and I can always tell on the faces of those that had not been, oh, this is cool, this is cool, but what in the world are they singing? You know, we don't know. And then somewhere in the middle, either by planning or just the providence of God or both, They start singing a song that we recognize that we know in English. This year it happened to be Agnus Day. You know, the Lord God Almighty reigns. The third day song originally, Michael W. Smith did it. And as soon as that song starts and they start to sing, and you can see on the faces of the Americans, we know this. And they start to sing along in English. And it doesn't sound like it would be beautiful, But it is absolutely beautiful to be singing praise to God in one language and almost all you can hear is somebody else in another language. Now there are times I get the words confused because I'm just lost in that moment and to realize our hearts are singing praise to God. We're going to have fellowship with each other. But let me tell you this. As great as hearing the Lord speak commendation into your life is, and as intrinsic to our own nature as it is to work and have responsibility, and as wonderful as our time with each other will be, nothing will compare to the infinitely satisfying relationship that we will have unending with our Lord. And it says here, Come and share in your Master's joy one thing, David said, I ask of the Lord, one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. One of the things that I think about when we were singing Jesus paid it all, the Lord just kind of gave me this image. Can you imagine gathered around that day and not having to sing that song in the third person, but that we can look into the face of our Savior and declare the glory of the sacrifice He gave. Here's the last thing I want to tell you. When we're face-to-face with the Savior, when we're face-to-face with our Lord, it is going to be the best experience you have ever had. But i also tell you what the Bible says teaches over and over again is that we will not all enjoy it the same. Jonathan Edwards, who was a pastor a couple hundred years ago, said that everyone's cup will be filled to overflowing when we get to see Jesus. It's just that some people's cups will be a lot bigger than others. And the way that we prepare ourselves for the feast that is our relationship with the Lord in heaven is to begin to build it and develop it and enjoy it here. And so the question I simply have for you today is, are you prepared for that? I don't see how anyone could say on earth, I don't really like going to worship. I don't really like spending time with the Lord. You may never say that out loud, but even think it internally and then expect heaven to be this unbelievable experience because that's what we will do. And the most tragic thing is that there are probably people in this room, and there are people in our church, and there are definitely people in our community, that if their life were to end today, they wouldn't even get the chance to experience it. I read a story about a famous singer who was asked to sing at this unbelievable wedding. And she sang at the wedding, and she got through, and went up to the reception. The reception was on the top floor of like a Sears tower. It was this unbelievable view. She got on the, got there, got ready to go up and there was a maitre d' there and he said, all right, let me just check your name on the list. And she checked and he said, your name's not on the list. She said, my name's not on the list. I sang at the wedding. I, I'm, I'm a guest of honor. I'm supposed to be here. She said, your name's not on the list. She said, well, just ask somebody inside, you know, I, I'm on the list. i I sang at the wedding. I'm supposed to be in there. And he said, ma'am, this list is definitive. No one that's not on the list can enter. So as they walked away, her husband just said, what in the world just happened there? she said, well, in the midst of talking to him, I realized I never sent the RSVP card back in. And I never made my reservation for the reception. There are people in our churches, in our community, maybe you today who have never sent in your reservation for your place in eternity with Jesus. You've never responded to the offer that He gives. You've never said yes when He's asked if you're willing to let Him save you. There's an old church father hundreds of years ago says that you ought to live each day prepared to die because no man knows when his day is. And I just wonder today, are you ready?